welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 16. And before I turn to my wonderful guests this week, let me just make my usual pitch for Counterpunch and for independent media. Um, you know, I don't know if you listened to last week's program, my conversation with Ted Rawl talking about how he was fired by the LA Times, but one of the things that came up and we discussed, I think, at length was the fact that really the nature of the corporate media is what is the problem. It's relationship to uh, to profits, it's relationship to corporations, it's relationship to the power establishment generally, and uh, this is something that you find not just with major news outlets, but you find it in the narratives themselves, the way that they frame them, the way that they uh, discuss the discourse. Um, Chomsky and Herman in their famous book, Manufacturing Consent, talk a lot about framing of debate. And that is really one of the most, uh, I think, insidious aspects of the corporate media, the way that the debate is framed and the way that it is limited. And that is something that Counterpunch really, I think, uh, pushes against. We have a wide range of debate here, all views, all types of uh, analyses. They are found on Counterpunch. And it's one of, I think, the best qualities of Counterpunch. So if you agree with that, you should consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. You should consider becoming a financial uh, donor to this project because by getting that subscription, you're supporting Counterpunch, you're supporting this project, and you're supporting independent media. And I think that is really, really important, especially given the nature of what media has become and how important independence truly is. Uh, Look at all of these most important issues that we're talking about here on this program that you see on Counterpunch every day, and you understand just how much of a void there would be if there were no Counterpunch. So uh, consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. Also, positive reviews on iTunes, really important. I know I keep pushing that every week, but it is absolutely essential. Um, a lot of people find shows via iTunes, via those recommendations, and um, I want to thank those of you who have given us such wonderful glowing reviews that's really really appreciated and uh, if you have a moment please do give us a review or at the very least even just a rating even those help so thanks so much for that and continue supporting the show with all of that being said I want to turn to my first guest this week Margaret Kimberly she is an editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report Uh, you should be following her if you're on Twitter you should be following her at Freedom Ride blog Um, I've spoken with Margaret a number of times I think that she's one of the best political analysts that we have. Um, she is, um, well, she's great. Let me let me turn to her. Margaret, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Oh, thank you, Eric. So listen, we got a lot to talk about here and not a ton of mm-hmm. time to cover it. So let's get right into it. So much happening right now in the U.S., particularly, um, of course, the headlines in the activist world have been somewhat dominated by the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and especially this recent episode with Bernie Sanders. So I want to start there because I think that most of our listeners, um, mm-hmm. most of our listeners are going to be aware of what's happened, mm-hmm. They're going to know about this. So let's talk a little bit about this question. How do you view this whole conf- confrontation with Bernie Sanders and the political context within which that has happened? Well, I, you know, first of all, let's let's talk about Bernie Sanders. Um, there, there's a lot less there than meets the eye. Um, one of my uh, colleagues at Black Agenda Report, Bruce Dixon, wrote a uh, column 
calling uh, Sanders the perennial Democratic, uh, as he called it, the sheepdog, who herds progressives, gets people excited, herds people in just so they can end up supporting uh, the person that they don't like very much, in this case, Hillary Clinton. So Dennis Kucinich played that role. Uh, Jesse Jackson ended up playing that role. So that's the first thing to know about Sanders. Um, I was looking at his website yesterday to see his foreign policy positions, and they aren't on the site. He doesn't have any. Exactly. Um, and I that why. Tells, yes. So his and he's, he has said he has already said that um, he will end up supporting the nom- Democratic nominee, which will be Hillary Clinton. And so what is the point? Uh, wh- there's no reason to be excited about him. He's going not going to be the nominee himself. He will support the eventual nominee. So there's no reason for people uh, on the left to be in his thrall in the first place. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. Now, we at Counterpunch have gotten a lot of flack for taking a decidedly critical uh, position on Bernie Sanders, even though there's some people who have written some you know, moderately lukewarm pieces about him. There's been a lot of critique of him as well. And just for me personally, I I just speaking for myself, I can't support anybody who has nothing to say about Libya, about Syria, about Ukraine, or actually mm-hmm. not only nothing to say, he's actually supported the wrong side on all of yes. these issues, including Palestine, uh, including many other issues. And so, you know, that sort of uh, disqualifies him in my mind from any support, at least from an anti-imperialist left perspective. Now, mm-hmm. with that being said, though, there is this question about uh, Sanders being confronted by Black Lives Matter. And this has kind mm-hmm. of become a little bit of a controversy on the yeah. left. I know a lot of people have written about it. A lot of people have voiced opinions about it. And in fact, Black Agenda Report has recently jumped into the fray in, in, in some sense. So let's talk a little bit about this. How do you view the uh, Black Lives Matter, or at least those individuals who uh, more or less were representing Black Lives Matter in some capacity, confronting Sanders, how do you view the political significance of that? Is it significant, or is it just being blown out of proportion? Well, I think it's it's significant, but not in a good way. Um, I have a serious question about Black Lives Matter altogether. What is the what is this movement going to do? It grew out of uh, the anger uh, over uh, police uh, murder, uh, Michael Brown and and others in 2014. But where do they stand? What do they do? What do they want the rest of us to do? So I I have some issues with Black Lives Matter themselves. Um, The problem, one of my problems with them is they don't confront the people who are really powerful in the Democratic Party. Uh, Bernie Sanders is not going to be the nominee, so it's easy to confront him. Have they tried to confront Hillary? So apparently they have, but she's going to meet with them. And is that necessarily a good thing for them to meet with Hillary Clinton? What are their demands? I think that's how we judge uh, movements. What is it that they say they want to have happen? Uh, we uh, there should be a demand for federal prosecution of police. There should be a demand 
for community control of the police, real community control, not civilian complaint review boards and the like, which are more PR than anything else, but the ability to hire and fire and punish police officers who are working in the black community, the ability to end the um, the mass incarceration state, which is the foundation through which uh, um, uh, police brutality is built upon. So those are the things I'd like to see Black Lives Matter uh, talk about and demand, but uh, I have not seen that. Um, I, I, there's nothing inherently wrong, necessarily wrong, with uh, public uh, statements such as that, a kind of political theater. That can be okay. But why confront Bernie Sanders? He's the president of the United States. He's not the one who um, has refused to have the Justice Department bring any of these killer cops to justice. So, uh, you know, it's easy to to pick on him. And, you know, and the first thing we think of at Black Agenda Report is that they're in the pocket of the Democratic Party. So uh, you beat up on Bernie Sanders. It's another, you know, way of, uh, of sheepdogging. But you don't uh, do that to Hillary or even attempt to do that to Obama. And you don't even have to... Uh, have a face-to-face confrontation as with Sanders, it can, those demands can still be made. Will they be at the Congressional Black Caucus uh, annual conference next month, every September? They have this corporate-sponsored uh, uh, event in Washington, D.C. Will Black Lives Matter confront the members of the Congressional Black Caucus who uh, are among those, as we call them, the Black Misleadership Class? who have um, failed black people on so many different issues. So uh, I think it's actually bigger than that event, which uh, Bernie Sanders did not handle it uh, the way most politicians know how to. You know, it's one of the oldest political tricks in the book is to when somebody's shouting you down or heckling or whatever you want to call it to say, to supporters, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're, you know, we let everybody speak. He, you know, he could have done that, but uh, so he created a problem of his own making. But my, I, my bigger concern is with Black Lives Matter and the direction they're going in. Yeah, I, I would agree. But let me push back a little bit because I want to get your take on some of the responses that we've heard. Um, we actually had a, a, a written statement. Um, I believe it was from one of the two women who were involved in that in that uh, episode in Seattle. And they were mm-hmm. basically suggesting that their, uh, their confrontation with Bernie Sanders was less about Bernie Sanders than it was about confronting the white progressive establishment in Seattle, which mm-hmm. uh, had turned out in large numbers for Bernie, that it really wasn't about Sanders, but it was about calling attention to white supremacy and racism Mm -hmm. within the so-called progressive left. Now, Mm -hmm. how would you respond to that? And I know what you're saying as far as uh, substantive critique of their lack of demands, but is that a relevant, uh, or I shouldn't say relevant, but is that an adequate response to this critique? Well, I, you know, I would say... For me, the the ultimate in uh, political movement building is denunciation of the Democratic Party altogether. Uh, you could do that at a Democratic event, as they did. Um, it can be done uh, outside through um, a, a group's own uh, particular actions. But um, 
I, you know, pulling so well. The other the other thing is the left. Who is really on the left? Um, you know, Democrats who are liberals or think of themselves as left usually are not. So I, I don't personally think of people at a uh, a rally featuring Bernie Sanders as being on the left anyway. Are you just guilt tripping white liberals? So I, I think that's uh, what it uh, in the end what what it amounted to was uh, guilt-tripping white liberals who had a variety of reactions, some of which were were racist. They have bad banners, how dare they, and, and, you know, more, much more harsh um, attacks than that. But um, just making uh, people angry who think of themselves as progressives doesn't, doesn't really amount to much to me. Yeah, I actually would agree with you, but I I do think that this is an important question to probe because, look, in many ways, we can see uh, some of the same flaws, some of the same uh, holes as we saw with Occupy. That is to say, (laughs) this very notion of decentralized, quote, and I'm vigorously air quoting as I say this, decentralized (laughs) movements, right? Movements without true leadership, movements that don't articulate demands, movements that seem to be more about brand building than they are mm-hmm. about substantive uh, political action and and revolutionary struggle. I think that this is a very real question, and I think, quite frankly, this is something that Black Lives Matter really needs to be engaging with rather than um, what I've seen, and just this is my, I'm speaking from my own personal opinion, a somewhat more of a, um, let's call it a defensive posture when people suggest that they should have demands, that they should have more leadership. Now, Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe this is still a nascent movement. It's just beginning. All of that is true. But I think that these are very real questions. And I think that Black Agenda Report, for instance, just this week, raised this very question. Is it okay to publicly critique this movement? Is it okay to ask these questions? Or does everything have to be a fight? Well, it's always okay to ask questions. I think it's always okay to critique. And I I would say to the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, leadership such such as it is, um, you know, and they're young and they're doing this for the first time. But I would say if you're a public figure, which they are now, you're going to have to face public critique and people don't have to call you first and ask you questions. Uh, if you make a public statement, other people can critique that statement. So uh, there's there's no use for what what and I'm sorry I, I I'm sure that uh, no one will appreciate this but that otherwise it comes across like whining and you can't do that if you're uh, um, a public in a public leadership position um, and it, you know an organization can be leaderless but there has to be a demand every uh, achievement popular achievement had a demand for workers' rights, for voting rights, to end the war. There was always some, at least one thing that everybody could rally around, that there was a movement. We want to see X. Uh, And what is X for Black Lives Matter? What is it? So, uh, and they've got to figure it out amongst themselves and say so. And they can have a more diffuse leadership that can work, but they've got to say what it is. One of the reasons Occupy failed is that they didn't, um, you know, we still talk about the, you know, the one percent and income inequality and uh, 
they gave millions of people a way to talk about something that they had observed but didn't know didn't know quite how to talk about it and they did that but they didn't say we want to nationalize the banks for example um uh so i think that was one of their failings and i think that's one of the reasons uh that they are now spoken of uh in the past tense so yeah. movements have st- always have to have a at least one clear demand otherwise otherwise it can just turn into branding and and you can be easily co-opted by the political parties or by NGOs or progressives with so-called with a lot of money that's right. And uh, again, I, I, I should just stress and reiterate that all of this is being said in support of Black Lives Matter and in support mm-hmm. of, of the movement and in support of growing it. Uh, I don't, at least me personally, I don't think of any of this as, you know, um, well, for lack of a better word, shitting on Black Lives Matter. I think that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're speaking in support of it and in hoping to open up the conversation so that it can, it can grow in a positive direction. And with that in mind, one of the things that strikes me about seeing this uh, confrontation with Bernie Sanders, and I guess, you know, earlier earlier uh, today, we're speaking here on August 13th, earlier mm-hmm. today, there was the news that they had interrupted a Jeb Bush town hall meeting or something like right. this. But I have a very real question as to not only the efficacy, but the relevance of uh, going after these presidential candidates. I don't think that that's necessarily going to achieve anything in a substantive fashion. Whereas if Black Lives Matter, for example, were doing similar types of actions at community boards, at school boards, when they're trying to privatize and close down public schools, at community council meetings and gentrifying neighborhoods, at all of these local and, and and, and regional and national platforms that are directly relevant to uh, communities of color, I think that those type of actions would really build Black Lives Matter into something that is substantive rather than simply performance. Well, I, I think you're right. And there's so many issues um, uh, around which they could have uh, some cogent and, and, and very clear-cut demands. Um, you could say no charter schools or um, ending police police brutality. Obvious. There, there's so many different issues. Um, but yes, this confronting people, and I feel like they confronted Jeb Bush because they were criticized uh, so severely uh, because of the Bernie uh, Sanders uh, event. And even though, you know, and you can say it wasn't Bernie Sanders, the event was about. I think social security or something, but he's the guy of the moment and he was there. So however um, you, you may want to talk about it, it was seen as a, um, uh, an action against Bernie Sanders. So I I think they have to stop trying to say it wasn't necessarily directed at him because he was the guy on the stage at the moment. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I think that again, you know, um, just in New York City, for example, where we're both located or in Philly or in Chicago or in Oakland or all of these major cities with large concentrations of black people, of uh, communities of color generally, all of them face similar problems. The gentrification, the privatization, mm-hmm. the charterization, all of right. these things, the, the, the looting, the, the structural attack and evisceration of the black working class, black standard of living, life expectancy, health, access to health care, all of these issues that are really 
only, you know, uh, substantive ones, I think that they're somehow completely missing from the Black Lives Matter narrative. And I just wonder if that's uh, simply a, you know, a product of them just getting going, or is there something more deeply rooted in the nature of this movement? Well, I think that that's a good question, and they're the ones who can answer it. Um, so far, they don't, frankly, respond very well to critique, I don't think, and that's something they're going to have to learn to do. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of jargon, a lot of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I call it touchy-feely language, which is, you know, they're in big leagues now, and they have made themselves a political force already, and they have to start acting like it. So uh, they have to respond. They can't just say you criticized us without calling first or, or any of those things or talking about a safe space. You know, time to suck it up. Uh, what does Black Lives Matter want? What do you want to see happen in this country? What do you want to see happen? What do you want to stop happening? What is that? And, uh, you know, shouting down uh, Jeb Bush or Bernie Sanders or anybody else doesn't really amount to much. Right. I mean, it in, grab, in it, and of itself. It right. It not. grabs headlines. But so sure. what? I mean, so you grab some headlines. I'm not you know, that's the that's the idea is that what is the next step? Now, I want to I want to touch on something that you already mentioned, Margaret, but mm-hmm. taking it in a slightly different direction. One of the things that that has come up out of this whole, you know, Sanders gate or whatever we want to call it, <laughs> um, is this question of black support within the Democratic Party. Because what I find interesting is that these Black Lives Matter activists justified their actions. And I have no problem with it, quite frankly, because I'm not a Bernie Sanders supporter at all. But they justified their actions saying that they wanted to confront the white progressive uh, left. And yet, if you look at the all of the polls, the polls show overwhelming support within the black community for Hillary Clinton. Now, mm-hmm. there is a disconnect in my mind that if, if the Black Lives Matter movement believes it's important to confront the progressive left, why then are they not confronting the most important question of black misleadership class, as Black Agenda Report calls it, or the black uh, allegiance to the Democratic Party establishment and to the Clintons especially? Because they're the ones with the power. That, that's, I mean, that is my cynical conclusion. Um, you know, you still, if you still want to be part of the democratic mainstream, if you want to get those jobs, if you want to get those gigs, if you want to get that exposure, then you play ball with the Democrats. It's, it's that simple. Um, and I'm not a mind reader. I don't know if that's their intent, but that's definitely how it looks. Uh, the issue for black people, for freedom, for us, has to be disengaging from the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is the obstacle to uh, uh, ending inequality. The Democratic Party is pro-austerity. The Democratic Party is pro-imperialism. The Democrats, Bill Clinton, you know, trying to weasel out of it to get black people to vote for Hillary, he is responsible for uh, the growth, the explosive growth in the uh, prison system, which has sent so many black people behind bars. So the Democrats are the problem. And if, excuse me, if this movement just ends up being uh, certain people having more access, then it's an abject failure. So uh, I think that's what they have to, they've got to put their cards on the table and tell us what they really, where do they really stand? And I think Hillary Clinton, you know, I think she has 
you know, I think it's just name recognition. She's been around for 20 years. So, uh, and most people, unless they're, you know, um, better informed, don't, didn't know who Bernie Sanders was. So I think that's, that's pretty simply most of it, but to, to get to Sanders again, he's not a socialist. At one time he called himself one. Now he calls himself an independent and he, you know, cuts deals with Democrats in Vermont to keep other Democrats off the ballot. So that's that's pretty much as left wing as as he is right now. So I, I just wanted to also take that take this opportunity uh, to uh, say why I would never support him and why I do not advise others to. Yeah, well, no doubt about it. <laughs> I I would agree with that. Um, I I just think that this this question of Hillary Clinton getting uh so much overwhelming black support, I think is a very is a very important one, and it's something that at least within the black community, within the black establishment, they need to be they need to be um uh, discussing this. That is to say, the movement needs to be um really, I think, aggressively going after this question. Just as you said, not just disengagement from the Democratic Party, but exposing what the Democratic Party really is and what it represents, especially for communities of color. Right. Well, actually, you know, denouncing the Democratic Party. Yes. They are the problem. Yes. Um, And, uh, you know, we're not going to be Republicans, um, but but it's a larger issue, political issue, of uh, talking about um, actually uh, developing... Uh, our, a real labor party, a, a real progressive party, and that could be the Greens already exist, or there, you know, in the past there were efforts to have a, a national black political party. People can start discussing that again, but I think it's important to discuss that again. Otherwise, we're in the same situation every four years. We are talk about sheepdogging. We are herded into worshiping the electoral process. Yes. Uh, which means less and less every year. Uh, the results represent us less and less every year there. I mean, we, we can already, if you're paying attention, you can already see it. But now there are actual studies being done about the lack of democracy in the United States and how our votes mean uh, so very little that Americans get, uh, in many cases, the opposite of what they want, even when they do participate, even when we do vote. So I, I think those are the things that we we have to start saying. And, you know, we can't fear being called a spoiler and, and any of that stuff because we're going, you know, rapidly going to hell in any number of ways from, as you pointed out, gentrification and austerity and uh, the uh, uh, imperial imperative that our country always follows, the prison state, which shows no sign of, of diminishing and none of those things will end if we continue to act as though the Democrats are our saviors. I, I couldn't agree more. I want to shift gears a little bit because um, one of the other things that's uh, making making news right now is some of the developments in Ferguson uh, surrounding the one-year anniversary of the, uh, the, the killing of Michael Brown. And um, I want to get your take on that. I mean, what have you noticed about the the marking of the one year anniversary? The way that events have developed there. I mean, we saw Cornell West recently being arrested in St. Mm-hmm. Louis in for a demonstration in front of the courthouse. We've seen violence break out there. So, what do you make of what's happening in Ferguson? And uh, put it in a little bit of a political context for us. Well, it was a watershed. Last year was a watershed year uh, for Black people. In uh, I, I don't know if most people knew. 
how bad police brutality was. I mean, every black person has stories and personal experience or friends or family experience uh, about interactions with the police. So in one sense, we were not surprised, but uh, the figure of every 28 hours, the, a black person being the victim of police or vigilante uh, violence, which is hardly ever punished, uh, the fact that we don't even know how many people the police kill every year. We now realize it's more than a thousand people. But the deaths of Eric Garner and um, uh, Michael Brown and other cases around the uh, country really galvanized uh, black people uh, into what we, what we had before Obama, this unanimity of opinion, uh, this unanimity that we were the, the group that would always uh, be willing to uh, tell the truth in this country. The, the one group that would always speak truth to power, we, that was reignited. So uh, I think the events in Ferguson show that uh, a year later, the lack of prosecution of the, of the cop uh, still has uh, people very, very angry and willing to show their, to demonstrate their outrage. But once again, the thing that's missing is there's precedent for prosecution of police. Uh, you know, President Bush, for God's sake, uh, his Justice Department uh, prosecuted the cops who beat Rodney King on video more than 20 years ago. So there's precedent. There's precedent for that. There's precedent for um, a case here in New York, the Crown Heights riots, where a young man was acquitted in a criminal court, but then later found guilty uh, by the feds. So that is what's missing. I think it's important for people to remember and to drive these issues home. But what is the demand? What is it that you want to see happen? Having been brought together, having marched together, what is it that we're asking for, or rather demanding uh, happen? So that is, um, you know, so it's somewhat disheartening. It's heart heartening to see that people have not forgotten. This is not going to be swept under the rug. But there's also a lack of cohesion about what the next step ought to be. No doubt about it. I, I would also add, though, that I think that there's a there's a somewhat of a symbolic importance to this, or rather a symbolic significance that I would take from it. Um, some of the things that you see happening, I think, illustrate to 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 a large degree this sort of um, continuing slide into a more and more increasingly fascistic police mm -hmm. state uh, type of scenario in the U.S. Not just with the police murders of of young people of color, but young people in general, but particularly young people of color. Um, not simply that, but you look at the white militias on the streets mm -hmm. now in, in Ferguson. You look at the, the impunity with which these, these police officers are acting. You look at the uh, seemingly wanton uh, use of martial law now, which we've seen essentially multiple times over the course of the last 18 months in, in, in Boston. We've seen it in Ferguson. We've seen it around the country. Baltimore, more or less, not really, but sort of, you know, I think that Ferguson and what's happening in Ferguson is indicative of a larger question that all of us are going to have to face. And that is, what is this society really becoming? It's not just the police state of theory. It's really become the police state in practice. Sure. And speaking of Black Lives Matter, one thing they could protest, the Obama uh, Department of Homeland Security has them all under surveillance. 
Black Lives Matter have been under surveillance. So if they're going to interrupt people, they certainly need to bring that up. Uh, so, yes, this increased repression uh, of the entire population, uh, Edward Snowden's revelation that we're all under surveillance all the time, that the NSA has records of everyone's phone calls, everyone's emails, everyone's contact list. Uh, the repressions are uh, big and uh, small. For black people, they're very basic. The uh, control over, maintaining physical control over us is still very real. But for everyone in this country, the loss of our freedoms, the loss of democracy uh, is uh, being ratcheted up little by little. So, um, so yes, we are, our, our country has, is becoming more and more repressive. Now, these people, the Oath Keepers and whatnot in, in Ferguson, what should the uh, response of black people be? Missouri is one of these open carry states where you can legally walk around with a, a, a rifle or an automatic weapon in public. But that is some, a point for Black Lives Matter to make. Those laws are meant for white people. Uh, John Crawford and Tamir Rice in Ohio. Ohio's an open carry state. They were killed because they had toy guns. So according to Ohio law, you're able to walk around with a real gun. And uh, without fear of punishment. But those laws are, are made for white people. They're not made for us. And that's something that Black Lives Matter, uh, one, one of many issues that they could point out. But, you, but you, you've got to be fearless in your critique. I mean, the, the, the Oath Keepers and the uh, militias patrolling Ferguson, that's nothing but the 21st century slave patrol. And it's uh, important for th for it to be called as such. And Black Lives Matter, in the leadership role that they have uh, now assumed, need to need to call it that. Definitely, I would also say too that um, you know I actually I had Glenn Ford on this program weeks ago, and we talked a little bit about this issue and about the need, or rather the the desire for communities of color to be able to control their own spaces. And that also means uh, that being able to maintain physical control of those spaces. Now, if you're going to have white militia, right, I would say primarily right wing white mm -hmm. militias walking around with guns, is it mm -hmm. not a real question within the black community whether they need to be arming themselves to defend themselves both from those militias and from the police? I mean, this is a question. I know a lot of people on the left, the progressives and whatever, they don't like to talk about guns. They don't want to whatever. I'm not going to open up that whole can of worms at the moment. I'm just saying these questions about self-defense, control of communities, all of these things, these are all of the, uh, in my mind, the integral and, and uh, pivotal questions that any movement such as Black Lives Matter has to engage with and address. Right. Well, that was the issue for, uh, the uh, the Black, one of the uh, founding principles of the Black Panther Party exactly, in, the late, right. in the late 60s, yep. that uh, we had the right to practice self-defense. And of course, the Black Panthers were crushed along with the, the rest of the, uh, the movement by COINTELPRO and by uh, imprisonments and, and out and out murder of uh, uh, um, uh, in uh, Chicago, Fred Hampton, I'm sorry, I was blanking on his name, Fred Hampton and, and Mark Clark. So, but keeping that in mind, we have to start talking about how do we do that again? Yes. And we know the stakes are high. We know that the 
some people will pay with their very lives. The, the price will be high, but uh, you cannot have or you should not have the Oath Keepers patrolling the streets of uh, Ferguson and uh, some uh, group calling themselves Black Lives Matter who, uh, you know, seem to think the most important thing is uh, um, interrupting a rally. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're we're coming to the end of our conversation here, but I just want to touch on one other issue. Um, and this is something that I think is really important. And, you know, I, I, I understand that this is something for the movement to be addressing on its own, that it's not something for outsiders, quote unquote, outsiders to be forcing into the conversation, but I simply don't hear it. And that's the question of whether or not African lives matter. I wonder whether this conversation can be broadened and to really take on the fundamental question of imperialism and the victims of imperialism who are by and large, maybe with the exception of Eastern Ukraine and a couple of other examples, but Mm -hmm. by and large are people of color in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Latin America – Will a movement not and I'm not just picking on Black Lives Matter. I just mean in general, mm-hmm. can we infuse this question and make it more than just a, you know, let's call it a a national question within the United States and broaden it to the international level as we try to build solidarity around the world? Yeah, we um, I'm I'm on the administrative committee of a group called UNAC, United National Anti-War Coalition, and we had a conference a few months ago and our theme was stop the war at home and abroad. Um, We realize it's it is vital to to link together these movements, the fight against imperialism and the fight uh, against uh, repression that uh, Americans experience. It's you know, it, it. it cuts both ways. There are people who are more interested, frankly, in domestic uh, affairs and in uh, uh, foreign policy issues. But I think it's important to raise it anyway. We can't have a, a, a country that has bases all over the world. I, I didn't know there were so many countries in the world. Um, and uh, essentially trying to control the rest of uh, the planet through wars, through sanctions, war by other means. And you you cannot have a country that uh, is going to be fair in one sphere and unfair in another. So you, you can't have a country that has its own police state and more people in prison than any uh, other country on the planet and then express surprise when that yeah. same country uh, threatens, well, doesn't just threaten, but kills people all over the world. So I think it is important to to make that uh, that linkage. Yeah, and the the understanding that what those cops in Baltimore did to Freddie Gray, or what Darren Wilson did to Mike Brown, or what the cops in Staten Island did to Eric Garner on a on an on an individual level, is what the United States and its allies have done wholesale to Libya, to Syria, to Somalia, mm-hmm. to Yemen, to all of these other countries. It's simply the macro micro version of this sort of microaggressions that we see in the US. And I think that that connection is not merely a theoretical one. I think that this is also a very practical and strategic one. If you want a successful movement in the United States, you need to develop your capacity beyond the United States. Sure. I mean, an operative word there is aggression. I I find it... um you know, depending on my mood, it's sickening or amusing to see the way the press talks about other countries. 
uh, they're always talking about uh, Vladimir Putin being aggressive in Russia and, you know, many times just outright lies. But uh, uh, the fact that the United States can be aggressive against Iran and uh, take away its sovereign rights and then act like the victim after browbeating Iran into uh, uh, agreeing to do things that are frankly not in their interest and then to actually debate if they should even do that is just uh, beyond the pale that the Barack Obama decided to have Gaddafi killed in the president of Libya. And Hillary Clinton thought it was made this joke, we came, we saw, he died. And that Syria hangs on uh, by a thread after uh, four years of the United States and Saudi Arabia deciding that somebody else ought to ought to run that country. So uh, these are uh, these are issues that have to be talked about. A, a country is not going to be aggressive in one sphere and non-aggressive in another. Uh, we have to talk about the fact that our president, Barack Obama, claims a right to assassinate U.S. citizens, and he did it. Anwar al-Awlaki is, is is dead, and so is his uh, teenage son. And very few people said anything about it. So uh, I think if uh, Black Lives Matter claims to be on the left, they can talk about that, can't they? Yeah, well, I think that these are all important questions. And again, I would reiterate that uh, Black Lives Matter is something to support. I think that all of these movements, uh, what, in whatever capacity they emerge, are something to support. But at the same time, that support needs to be uh, one that is not only uh, unafraid of being critical, but one that is uh, supportive in a constructive way, rather than just being, you know, bringing out the pom-poms and cheerleading. Well, you know, the other thing is, you know... I- we, I have to see what Black Black Lives Matter is really about before I say I support them. I support Black lives. Uh, I support our our right to live in this society without uh, fear of uh, 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 extrajudicial murder. I definitely support that. I support the uh, the families, the survivors of these uh, police murder victims. I support them getting justice. But I may not be able to support Black Lives Matter. I'm I'm ready to say that uh, they've they've got to show me something different, and uh, they don't have a whole lot of a lot of time to do it. Um, I don't know that I support this organization as it's currently uh, organized and uh, based upon what they do and say right now. That's a that's an interesting point. Um, I think we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, because I think we could probably go on for another hour or two. But um, Margaret Kimberly, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, listeners, you should follow her work. She is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. Her uh, Freedom Rider blog comes out, I think it's Wednesdays, right? Yes, it does. Yes. Freedom Rider blog on Wednesdays. Follow her on Twitter at Freedom Ride blog. Uh, I did that two weeks in a row. Now. I messed up Twitter. I messed up Twitter two weeks in a row, even though I'm on Twitter all the time. At Freedom Ride blog is your Twitter. Um, okay, Margaret, thanks for coming on the show. And listeners, stick with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk more about imperialism, about Africa, about building solidarity, and a whole lot more. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and um, I want to transition now into a related topic, but I think something that is woefully uh, ignored, I would say, in the mainstream narrative when it comes to a lot of the issues that we were just talking about in terms of people of color, marginalized communities, but also the question of imperialism and neocolonialism. I think that these are really fundamental questions in not only examining the situation in the United States and in the so-called West, but really examining the relationship with the world more broadly. And uh, with that in mind, I have an excellent guest here with me today, Sukant Chandan. He is a political activist and blogger. You should follow his work at sonsofmalcolm.blogspot.com. He is also a, uh, well, he's an independent journalist as well, and he is the founder of the Malcolm X movement. He is based in London. Sukant, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Peace, brother Eric. Thank you for having me on and peace and respect to all the listeners out there. Well, I I wanted to get you on today because I think that there's a number of important subjects for us to touch on. And I think that um, if you're following the headlines, if you're following uh, what's happening in terms of uh, U.S. and NATO wars of these last few years and the Obama administration, broadly speaking, I think that you can all come back to this question of Libya. In many ways, Libya is a uh, touching off point for many of us. And I wanted to focus on Libya today with you. I know that's an issue that you've been really active on. So let's begin there. And let's begin, well, basically today, what is the situation in Libya right now? We're hearing a lot of talk about, you know, the war in 2011, the toppling of Gaddafi, the aftermath of that, but bringing it forward to today to examine the situation, what do we see happening in that country? Well, it's a complex situation, but uh, the, the first of all, I'd like to say that Libya has become 
a primarily important strategic base for neo-colonialism and imperialism, similar to the role that Afghanistan in the 1980s played for imperialism. It's basically a crucible and a base, and the term al-Qaeda also means a base, and Afghanistan was the base then. But Libya has become a base for destabilization and terrorism uh, conducted and facilitated by imperialism all across Africa and, and, and across wide swathes of Asia, but particularly focused on West Asia and especially, obviously, Iraq and Syria. So Libya remains strategically a, a real central focal point for imperialism, British, French and US imperialism in particular. But its interest and focus on Libya is inversely manifested in the disinterest of much of the Western left. And and I have to say, it's sad to say, even uh, wide swathes of the non-Western left and anti-imperialist circles. So really, I would encourage everyone to redouble their efforts or to even begin in looking into what is happening in Libya and why. And crucial to that was the events in February 2011, uh, which was part of the general Arab Spring moment, we can say. But as I said, and as I realized when I stood in Tripoli during the NATO bombing in 2011, three times through that year, that Libya was the defining issue of the Arab Spring, nay Arab Sting, perhaps. And and then what happened to Libya went on as the uh, blueprint for what they rolled out in Syria. And what they rolled out in Syria was just a few weeks after what they started in Libya in February, February 2011. But I'm going to fast forward to today and answer your question directly. Situation- well, actually, hold on, mm-hmm. Sukhan. We'll, we'll get to that. But since you brought sure. it up, I, let's let's touch on that because, in fact, mm-hmm. one of the misconceptions is that somehow Syria and Libya are totally disconnected, and in fact, they're not. Uh, to a large extent, the it, not just the template from Libya, but actually some of the on the quote unquote boots on the ground, some of the proxies that NATO used, the Al Qaeda elements, and many of these same terrorist networks funneled their fighters into Syria. A lot of the weapons went through Libya. And and into Syria. So not only in a theoretical context are they connected, but actually in a very real, concrete, and tangible way. That's correct. I think it was in 2012 when the Lebanese army actually foiled a massive shipment of uh, weaponry that was most likely going to for the destabilization and uh, campaign in Syria. That they that that, that you know, thankfully the Lebanese army uh, caught this shipment and ensured that it did not go to the death squads in, in Syria. But you're absolutely right, Eric. Um, there is a very much, uh, a, a very profound connection between Libya and Syria for imperialism and its proxy death squad forces. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, Libya is a training ground, much like Afghanistan was in the 1980s. It's a training ground for imperialism to train up its uh, death squads, recruit its death squads, and then send them out all across Africa, including Nigeria, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, uh, and further afield. And also, as you said, to recruit um, death squads to then send off to places like Syria, Iraq, and further afield. It goes all the way up to China, actually, with uh, the uh, the death squad uh, movement there in Xinjiang. 
Yeah, you know? ex- exactly. And actually, we have documented evidence and analysis from U.S. military. I believe it was the U.S. Army War College, but I'd have to double check on that, which actually found the highest concentrations of terrorist recruitment happening in that swath of territory between Benghazi and uh, 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 Derna, the city of Derna, yeah, exactly. and, and Tobruk. And in yeah. that region there is really where these networks were funneling a lot of these fighters from and sending them to Syria, sending them to all of these places that they have destabilized since. No, exactly. And also, along because when I say death squads or when people say militias, another term you can use is just, is just criminal gangs and, uh, or, or just mafia gangs. Yeah. And obviously, they're not involved in just uh, weapon smuggling and uh, the proliferation of uh, death squad fighters, but they're also involved in a whole bunch of other criminal activity, including uh, the people trafficking, including trafficking women into sexual slavery, um, including, you know, there's a big thing in the news at the moment about sending these mafia sending people into the Mediterranean Sea to their deaths. And, and tens of thousands have died, unfortunately, of our people in the Mediterranean Sea who've been people trafficked uh, by the same elements that in 2011, the mainstream media in the West and the Western imperialist governments were calling freedom fighters and liberators and revolutionaries and rebels. So, uh, so what, 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 what was termed as revolutionaries in 2011 are now somewhat disingenuously and hypocritically. But that's what we expect from these guys anyway. Now they're calling, you know, I know on Sky News they did a big story on the main people trafficker in Libya. But back in 2011, Sky News will be saying this is a great freedom fighter overthrowing the quote-unquote horrible dictatorship of Colonel Gaddafi, etc., etc. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on. And I know you've done some great work on Eritrea, and, and uh, you know that I'm working with Eritrean comrades here in, in London as well. But the people trafficking issue is a racket that imperialism is directly involved in. And the Eritrean comrades have exposed this brilliantly. Um, and they're using the people trafficking stick to beat the Eritrean uh, people and government with in imposing sanctions, which is, which is basically a declaration of war against Eritrea. So it's very multifaceted and it's quite a complex uh, uh, strategy that, that imperialism is rolling out. Oh, yeah, actually. And uh, I'll be speaking at a conference, uh, Eritrean Youth Conference, uh, next week, in fact. Okay. But um, okay. I think that the, the, the issue of Eritrea, not to get too far off the subject here, but the issue of Eritrea is also relevant to Libya historically, because, of course, Gaddafi was one of the main uh, supporters of Eritrea's independent economic development. That is to say, their rejection of foreign aid, their rejection of the IMF, the world World Bank, their rejection of all of the strings attached loans, and instead their their path towards truly independent development. And that's part of the reason why Eritrea is as isolated as it is, because it was deprived of one of its central, in fact, perhaps its main ally and backer in Gaddafi. Well, that's really interesting. I, I'm not as um, informed on this particular dynamic as you are, Eric, but I need to speak to you in more in depth and learn from you and uh, hopefully get some resources from you because part of the work, part of the central strategic work that we have to do is to tie these communities together and facilitate that unity building in the diaspora, in, particularly in the West where you are, North America, where I am on the winter, this cold windswept island off the co- coast of uh, north, uh, Northwest Europe. So, so we're holding conferences here with the Libyans and we're doing work with the Eritreans and, and we're, 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 we're building the cross-community alliance and unity between the Libyans and Eritreans and also people interested in Ukraine and 
the Malians and the Syrians and the Iraqis and everyone else who has a common enemy uh, in, in, in the regimes in these Western capitals. Yeah, that's exactly right. But let's come back to this uh, this question of, of Libya today because, you know, one of the things that we hear, and a couple of weeks ago I spoke with our, our mutual friend Hafsakara Mustafa, and we talked a lot about Algeria. We talked a bit at, uh, towards the end of our conversation about uh, Libya as well. And listeners, you can go back to uh, episode 14 to hear my conversation with, with Hafsa. And one of the things that we, that we touched on is the nature of Libya as a failed state and one of the this is one of those memes that you hear over and over again in the media now of course there's the obvious question of well who made it a failed state obviously the imperial powers that waged a war and destroyed that country but I think at a larger the larger issue is what does a failed state mean what does that look like it is the destruction of institutions it is the destruction of infrastructure it is the breaking apart of the fabric of society so speak a little bit to this issue and why that is so important to this neo-colonial drive that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean Hafsa Kara is, is a you know is, is, is a brilliant colleague of mine and uh, a very important important advocate of the Algerian context and all of this. And again, it's I think it's important for audiences to understand uh, why Algeria is a target for destabilization in a similar model of Ukraine, uh, Syria, and Libya, and also the attempted similar model they tried to roll out in 2002 in Caracas in Venezuela. Uh, now, the, m- most of the Global South countries are adamant, and they have been for a long time, for, for, for generations actually, that we require peace. Uh, the, the, the ideal situation for our countries is to be in a situation of peace and stability, uh, which basically means not being harassed by imperialism directly or indirectly in imperialism using uh, contradictions amongst our people and our people and their neighbors in ratcheting up a conflict. Now, peace is obviously important. And I'm, I'm sorry to kind of, if this is very oversimplistic, but actually there's, there's quite important issues in relation to this. And it and it and and then it pertains and it informs our other general anti-imperialist analysis as well, because it's correct that we are militant in our anti-imperialism. But also, I think that has to be balanced with the fact that our people need peace, because families need peace at the end of the day. And when I visited uh, uh, Morocco, uh, when I visited a close friend of mine, and my friend, unfortunately, is very supportive of these Al-Qaeda death squads. He happens to be from a Maoist background. But anyway, that, that's an aside. And I said to him, look, I'm no, I'm no supporter of the Moroccan regime. It's very pro-Western, etc. But nevertheless, do you really want to happen in Morocco what's happened in Libya, whereby you can't go from one town to another without being stopped by dozens of militias who are looking to kidnap yourself or the women and girls in your family for ransom etc you know and god forbid anything worse than than that so 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 peace is very important for global south countries it's important for global south uh, multilateral relations to have peace because we're just trying to survive and develop our capacity uh, to feed and clothe and educate our people and more than that to develop our military industrial technological capacity to prepare for the inevitable uh, provocations, military provocations, that is, by imperialism. So Libya was one of the most stable countries in, yes. the, in, in all of Africa. There's all kinds of contradictions amongst the Libyan people. It's a, it's a monolithic people in terms of religion. They're, they're all Sunni, uh, Sunnis with a few Sufis there. But the, 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 the contradictions, that, that were, there were mainly tribal mm-hmm. and also contradictions uh, of the tribes that the French and the British... Uh, also accentuated in their occupation 
of, and the Italians, sorry, and their occupation of Libya, which was cut into three parts, the French part, Fazan, Tripolitania, which was the, um, the, 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 the part uh, that the Brits got and then the Italians got the south. Now, from being a stable country, being the main financier and leader of the African Union, being one of the main African countries developing uh, South-South relations, particularly with the most uh, advanced region of the global South uh, struggle, which is probably so-called Latin, quote-unquote, America, you know, Libya was a very important target for destabilization and total destruction. And Dan Glazebrook, who's, who's another one of our comrades based here in Oxford, has written a book, um, which I consulted him through the research and writing, uh, in, in, in terms of the main strategic approach now of imperialism is not divide and rule, although that's a constant uh, policy and strategy, but it's, it's more than that. It's divide and rule to divide and ruin. It's yes. a scorched earth policy because it's a simple thing, and this has been picked up now by, by many other uh, commentators uh, in the anti-imperialist broad community, but even people in the mainstream, that, that, that the main strategy now, the rationale is this, the illogical, irrational rationale of imperialism is this, that if imperialism cannot have total hegemony and domination of any given country or region of the global south, well, then they're going to utterly destroy it because the last thing they want is for Russia and China and the other BRICS and global south nations to have a functional relationship yeah. uh, with these countries. You know, imperialism has deepened into a, a period of crisis. We can see that for many decades, going back to Vietnam and even crisis started with a number of things that happened around 1999 to 2001. That was the ascendancy of Chavez and his political project in that region of South America, which was the beginning of the end of the tin pot Yankee dictatorships, Emily dictatorships in that region. Secondly, it was the continuing rise of China. And we remember that also in 1999 that the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was obliterated and that was no coincidence. That was a signal to the Chinese by the Americans that this is what you're going to get if you keep trying to push your position. Um, and also at the same time, Putin took over the leadership of Russia from Yeltsin. So from a drunkard guy who facilitated the looting of, of, of Russia by Western imperialism, you had Putin who came back with the kind of the old KGB guard, the continuation in some senses of the old military uh, brass of the Soviet Union. Yes. So, so all, all these things combine, and there was, there's some other factors ensured that imperialism went into a deeper crisis, and then 9-11 suddenly happened, hey presto, the great excuse for conducting wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, which is also an attack on the, on, on the global, global South alliance, particularly the attack on Iraq. There's many more things to say about that. So, Iraq, Afghanistan and the Iraq, in the modern sense, have been the beginnings of the blueprint that imperialism rolled out for countries and nations of the global south, which they've been continuing to roll out as well. There's Somalia. The, uh, now there's Somalia, there's Libya, there's Syria. Iraq is continuing, and they're rolling out the same things in places like, like Nigeria and Mali. They want the same thing to happen to Tunisia and Algeria and Egypt and any and all countries that have a majority Muslim population, including places like Bangladesh as well, with similar machinations of these death squads and political forces behind these death squads are operating in to destabilize Bangladesh. 
Yeah, uh-huh. and 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 actually, I would I would add too that it's not mm-hmm. just the uh, a new phenomenon. For instance, we have seen uh, the evolution of the ongoing conflict in the Congo, which to a large extent is an example of the way in which death squads can actually operate over an extended period of time in the interests of certain forces that control them. And Somalia is another good example. And matter of fact, you uh, I know you 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 didn't mention it, uh, although you were probably thinking it. Yemen right now as well is actually another sort of focal point of this because while on the one hand you have a direct war, a direct bombardment, on the other hand that opens the door for a lot of these death squads. We now have reports of ISIS operating there. Of course, Al-Qaeda has really been in many ways the shock troops for the Saudi military to a large extent against the Houthi movement there. So really across the globe you've seen this movement, this, this trend emerging and it's not something that is new, but it's really, I think, coming to its own in recent years. And I think to a large extent, and it's probably not an overstatement, Libya is really the cornerstone, or, or perhaps we should say the, the turning point at which this strategy really became the, the face of the new imperialism. No, I'm totally right. And you're absolutely correct um, to, to have offered a critical corrective to me in uh, not mentioning Yemen. That was absolutely remiss of me. You're totally correct. Um, and also the DRC issue is interesting because when I was talking about the the moment of deepening crisis around 1990 to 2001, Robert Mugabe was demonized initially not because of his uh, land seizures that he supported by the Liberation War veterans, but actually I remember this back in the late 90s, what preceded uh, the land seizures and what started with the demonization of Mugabe in the late 90s was the fact that the Zimbabwean army yes. with other armies of the South African development community were going to the defense of Kinshasa in defense of the sovereignty of the Democratic Republic of Congo. This was an act that imperialism was absolutely disgusted by and went just berserk. And the demonization campaign of Mugabe started in earnest with this issue. And those who are old enough to remember the the um, I was going to sorry use a, a prof- profane word, but the nonsense of imperialism talking the about bullshit. You could say bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, bullshit is, is is a very useful thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I come from Indian villages where bullshit is very important on a, <laughs> for our fuel. Well, for I cooking. come from I come from New York City where bullshit <laughs> is equally important. <laughs> it is the currency of the day. <laughs> So, you know, the nonsense about Zimbabwean army generals getting uh, Congolese diamonds. Now, I mean, it was a lie and a nonsense. But, I mean, obviously, the Democratic Republic of Congo would have given some thanks to Zimbabwe and the other friendly countries that are coming to its uh, military defense. But I always kind of quip, you know, the imperialists want De Beers and want Western diamond companies to be getting all all, all the kind of uh, the the, the revenue from the diamond industry in Congo, you know, you know, just, uh, you know, just Lord help us if some Africans shock horror who are allies of the Congolese get any of that of that of that revenue. So it was a total white supremacist racist nonsense uh, going on there. 
Let's 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 focus now on something that's in the headlines as we speak. I mean, I just saw earlier today some of the comments from uh, I believe it was the the foreign minister in the UK. I also saw some of the comments from Cameron talking about this quote unquote this migrant crisis. And um, there's a number of things I think we need to discuss. But let's let's first hone in on this question of language. I mean, there is a significance just in using the term migrants to describe these people. That is, I think in inherently racist, but also a clear propaganda ploy to distort the true nature of the situation and of the issue. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Now, this is another, I mean, imperialism, unfortunately, is getting more sophisticated in its deceitful strategies and tactics. Um, Now, the migrant issue is interesting because basically what they've done, they've, they've, they've facilitated the crisis of our people who are traversing Libya in attempts to get to South Europe. They brought the mafia into power in Libya. And if anyone's, anyone is in doubt about this, remember Mama Gaddafi in February 2011 warned imperialism exactly of this, that if you're going to destroy Libya, well, you're going to have just waves of black people trying to get into Europe uh, using Libya as the starting point uh, in, in, in that journey across the Mediterranean. Now, what the Libyans had done under the previous socialist Jamaria government um, was that they had developed Libya so much that actually people from sub-Saharan Africa and also Tunisians and Egyptians and others from North Africa all went to Libya for a decent wage. Libya, I mean, I have people, friends of my family, most families will know someone, a friend or a family member, that went to Libya for work. Mm-hmm. Libyans never left Libya for work. They may have left Libya because they opposed the, the government and they were in the opposition and allied with the MI6 and CIA, etc. Okay, that's fair enough <laughs> if you want to leave Libya for that. But no Libyans uh, left Libya. Everyone went to Libya for work. People were giving relative dignity and a decent standard of living. Uh, in Libya, if you were non-Libyans uh, entering Libya, now so imperialism has 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 destroyed that kind of uh, that that people-centered um, management that was going on with uh, the the uh, the non-Libyan workers who were coming into Libya. So they've manufactured the migrant crisis, and now you'll see in the media they'll use the migrant crisis to again to redouble their imperialist strategy against North Africa as well. So it's it's a complex thing that, that that's going on. But again, people like yourself and myself and Dan Glazebrook and uh, Pepe Escobar and and, and and our other colleagues um, who are on Press TV and, and, and RT and other platforms like Counterpunch, etc. These are the go-to people to go to to understand this quite complex uh, policy. And it's a deceitful policy that imperialism is rolling out. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also add, too, that... When we're talking about this issue, we also need to remember that Libya pre-2011 was not simply a place that people went to get a wage. It was in many ways a a shining symbol of what the future of Africa could be. Because remember, Gaddafi had many, many run-ins with the the 
let's call them degenerate feudal monarchs of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. He saw these people as uh, really parasitical in many ways to the development of the entire region. And he had turned to Africa and he had changed the way that he viewed his place and the place of Libya and the Jamahiriya in, uh, in a historical context. And so Libya was also a symbol of African development. And this had been, I think, to a large extent, forgotten from the times of, you know, say Thomas Sankara and others who talked about independent economic development outside of the control of the neo-colonial powers. And so Libya also represented, yes, a, live, a, a wage and stability and all of these things, but it also represented a future. And I think that the symbolic importance of Libya was also something that the imperialists desperately wanted to smash. No, I totally agree. I mean, Obviously, peace and stability and a decent wage is 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 uh, is harmonious with a political project as well. And in January 2011, just weeks before the uh, NATO destruction started in earnest against Libya, uh, Malcolm X's grandson, Malcolm Shabazz, and other black radicals from North Amer- America and West Europe were invited to a conference uh, where Muammar Gaddafi greeted them in person. And there's a beautiful picture of young Malcolm Shabazz. Um, beam with his beautiful beaming smile and Gaddafi's uh, lovely smile and they're greeting each other uh, embracing which is which is beautiful but that conference was explicitly discussing uh, and and advocating that Libya is the base of the African pan-African black socialist revolution and and we that is the Libyans are here to support your political projects within the west in terms of black liberation so you're absolutely right Eric it was it was a vanguard political project of of, of African socialism, Pan-Africanism, it, 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 etc. Um, there was another point I was going to make in regards to this. Yeah, the other point I was going to make when I was in uh, Tripoli um, over 2011, there was a there was there was construction cranes all over Tripoli. It was a really impressive place, and uh, I, I I remember saying at the time that imperialism was never going to tolerate a developing shining black power socialist African Republic, sorry, a a Dubai-style black power socialist African Republic on the edge of Europe. It was never going to tolerate that. It was always going to attempt at destroying that. And similarly with Algeria, although Algeria hasn't got the, the human development index and hasn't got the standard of living that Libya did have pre-2012, although Algeria has some of the best living standards for its people across Africa now that Libya unfortunately, is out of the picture. They want to do to Algeria what they've done to Libya. And we can see in Tunisia that that project of destabilization and death squads has been proceeding. The Tunisian people do not want it and they've rejected it, but it remains a very precarious situation. It's on a knife edge which way things are going to go in Tunisia and in Egypt. But Algeria is a big prize for imperialism, that, that they're constantly looking to target that. No doubt, and that's actually something that's been that's been going on. That's what I talked about a couple of weeks ago with with Hafsa, and yeah. um, you know this is an this is an important point as well that um, the destabilization. Look, Libya was. I think you said it in the beginning of our conversation here, Sukhan. Libya was the sort of the the base of the destabilization for the entire continent, really, or at least the northern part of the African continent. I mean, if you look at the war. Uh, 
in Mali and the overthrow of that government and all of the developments that have happened there, none of that would have been possible were it not for the destruction of Libya, the flow of weapons, and all of the rest of the things that have happened since then. None of the uh, situation in Nigeria with Boko Haram would have been possible. I've written about it in Counterpunch as well. The flow of weapons through Mal, uh, excuse me, through Chad and the corrupt government in Chad and the arming of death squads, which we now call Boko Haram, all of that would have been absolutely impossible were it not for the war on Libya. So there, and of course, uh, the situation, as we've already discussed in neighboring Tunisia and uh, elsewhere, none of that would be possible without Libya. So in many ways, it was the opening salvo of a broader regional imperial struggle. No, that's absolutely absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic what's happened to Tunisia. The tourist industry has been sabotaged, particularly by the British state. Uh, there's no more uh, chartered flights to Tunisia. Now, Tunisia relies mostly on tourist economy. So you're talking about millions of Tunisian families who have just been slumped into even greater poverty. And it's in these conditions of poverty and undignified existence that Al-Qaeda and Daesh recruit more effectively. If you're, you know, if you're unemployed youth, I mean, the guy who did the, uh, the massacre at the resort just a few weeks ago, I mean, this is an unemployed guy. He's a, you know, he's a student. He's got no prospects, no future. Uh, and if you take away what little prospects these people have, you know, it's just like the U.S. Army or the British Army. It's just the asymmetric uh, manifestation of that is Al-Qaeda and Daesh uh, militia and death squads. You know, you, you're fighting for God and for the Ummah, so-called. You get, you're given weapons. You can loot uh, houses that you raid across Syria and Libya and Iraq, etc. You get access to sexually abused women and girls. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, of course, the, you know, unfortunately, these young men are going to be attracted to that and they're being recruited in that. And they, what, they're earning, what, $100 a month or so? And, you know, it's not much, but in addition to the free housing you get and the weapons and the women and the looting, you can send some money home. Yes. It's, a, it, it's, it's, it's a better, more, I mean, it's not dignified, but in their skewed and their warped minds, it's a, it's a better existence than staying, than staying in Tunisia. So it's absolutely important that the Tunisian people and all people, Nigerian people, that we get back into defeating the death squads and, and uniting our countries, uniting our countries multilaterally across regions and, and, in, and internationally uh, across continents and really try to develop and save our young people. I mean, in a different context, uh, similar things are happening to um, Eritrea as well, where imperialism is manipulating certain contradictions within Eritrea and then dangling a carrot in front of the noses of Eritrean youth and then using people smuggling mafia to encourage Eritreans to, to do this kind of, basically, it's nearly a suicide mission to traverse the Sahara into Libya anyway. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of complex things going on, but I absolutely concur with everything you said, Eric, in relation to the proliferation of the strategy across Africa. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, we're we're rapidly running out of time, but I want to touch on another really important subject before we get to uh, some solutions building, because I always think that that's important as well. But um, we have we've talked a little bit about symbolic uh, significance of Libya. Now, there's another symbolic moment that is uh, that that has already come and gone, but one that is coming as well, and that has to do with um, Muammar Gaddafi's son, Saif Al Islam Gaddafi, and uh, recently, he was convicted and sentenced to death, essentially in absentia, uh, by 
the quote-unquote, and I use this term very loosely, government in Libya. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what has happened in terms of this um, this sentence of death? What do you see coming in the near future as far as Saif goes? And why is this issue, particularly with regard to Saif Gaddafi, why is that so important as a means for uh, struggling against what is happening in Libya? Yeah, there's lots of quite complicated issues that you raise, Eric. So I'm going to try and kind of, it's going to be a nutshell answer. But again, I'd, I'd point people to the work that Eric and I have done and, and many others have done uh, in this regard on Libya. There's some really good books. There's Dan Glazebrook's book I mentioned. There's Maximilian Forte. There's Horace Campbell's book. There's Cynthia McKinney's uh, edited book. Um, and there's a few others as well. There's Francis Boyle's book on Libya, which is important as well. But Okay, so Saif al-Islam is an interesting character. Saif al-Islam headed the rapprochement with Western imperialism. Um, But in the summer of 2011, Saif al-Islam publicly apologized for his role in that rapprochement strategy on an interview on RT uh, in the English language, in which he said, look, I I led this process. Everyone is holding me responsible. And I made a major mistake. And I take responsibility for it. And when I spoke to many Libyans there who were involved in the rapprochement programs, in the so-called uh, democracy programs, all this kind of stuff, they all said that <clears throat> we don't want rapprochement with the West. We don't want to enter into this these programs because we know now that it was all a trap and a trick to bring counter-revolutionaries back into Libya to conduct this operation. Anyway, that's just a very, in, you know, it's a very simplified, in a nutshell, kind of history of Saif al-Islam. But Saif al-Islam... Uh, you know, he stayed loyal to the Jamaria. Whatever he did in, in, in playing footsie with imperialism for, for, for a short time, that project never worked. Now, Horace Campbell's book on Libya, Horace Campbell doesn't like Muammar Gaddafi and the Jamaria. He's opposed to it. He has this kind of third, third way, third camp type of analysis. Anyway, that's his thing. That's fine. But even Horace Campbell himself has to admit that the, the Libyan government did not cave in and kneel down to imperialism in the final analysis. And that is why, this is Horace saying it, that is why NATO destroyed Libya. So even someone who's very critical, but is a serious researcher, comes to that conclusion. So Saif al-Islam in 2011 resisted NATO, was a part of the leadership of resisting NATO in Libya. And for that, I suppose he got back some of the respect he lost as a, as a result of his role in the rapprochement program. So Saif al-Islam is in Zintan. The Zintani tribe, who has a militia, they are not on good terms with the Tripoli junta. There's two juntas in, 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 in Libya, or two governments. There's the so-called Western-recognized uh, one in Tobruk, led by the old Jamaria general, who then uh, <laughs> decamped to Virginia, to the CIA in the early 80s, uh, General Hafter. And there's the Tripoli junta, which is basically Ikhwan and pro-Al-Qaeda and pro-Daesh forces. But Zintan militia are not in good terms with the Tripoli junta. And so Saif al-Islam is their big asset and they treat him reasonably well. Um, but then the Tripoli junta wanted to put the, old, hot the entire Jamaria leadership on, on trial. It's not trial. It's just a, just a ridiculous uh, f- uh, a fiasco. Um, but they wanted to pass a death sentence on all of these comrades as I think as a power play in relation to the Tobruk government and also the power play with Zintan and other militias. So that's what went on. The interesting thing that happened and the amazing thing that happened as a result of the death sentencing of, of, of our leadership in Libya 
was that for the first time since the destruction of the Jamaria, the pro-Jamarian forces in Libya, of which there are many, came out to raise the green flag and raise portraits of Saif al-Islam and Muammar Gaddafi. And, you know, just people have to be clear, raising the green flag in Libya means you will be targeted by the death squads. It's a very brave and courageous thing to do. But obviously, the, the barrier of fear has been broken in Libya. There's millions of pro-Jamarian, anti, anti-imperialist, NATO pe- anti-NATO people, diaspora in, in Egypt and Tunisia especially, but there's also millions in Libya as well. So for the first time, and you know, millions didn't come out, thousands came out, but it was an amazing, brave first step in developing the resistance movement in Libya. So for two weeks, every day, every town and city, basically, except Tripoli, where Daesh and Al-Qaeda, etc., are, are, are controlling that place, uh, in, in, in a very fascistic, bloody manner. But every other town and city across Libya, including Benghazi, saw pro-green Jamaria protesters come out in the streets. And really, it's, it's a moment where anti-imperialists across the world should be mobilizing in support of this. Because we're talking about, first of all, the death sentencing of an entire socialist global vanguard leadership of ours, right? I mean, imagine if all the people of uh, Maduro's leadership were given the death sentence. There would be uproar across the left and anti-imperialists in the world. Similarly, there should be for you know, Muammar Gaddafi and Jamari was a was a primary ally of people like Morales and Correa and Castro and and, and and Chavez. So it's really important that people focus on this and move and activate themselves on this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I would just also add that I guess it was now more than a year ago that uh, I wrote a piece in Counterpunch on some of the issues that you're talking about back then, um, there was a moment where green forces, that is to say the the anti-government uh, pro-Gaddafi forces, which had gone underground, had somehow come above ground. They had led an assault on an air base in the south, and they pretty much had made it clear that they were in a de facto alliance with some of the, uh, the uh, black Libyan tribes in the south in the Fizan province. And that was a moment where it became clear that there was an underground there was a green Jamahiriya underground in Libya, and I think that that is what we're beginning to see rising to the surface ever so slowly. And I think that this this episode with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi being sentenced to death, I think that that is the first moment at which it has really brought them above ground. And that's a major turning point. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, the the, the funny thing in Sabah, in the South, in the last few weeks, was at the main university, they tore down the pro-NATO old uh, monarchy flag of Libya, and they raised the green flag at the university. And Sabah was where the airbase was. That's the Yeah, exactly. 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 So... uh, I mean, you know, it brings a lot of joy to, joy to my heart, but but obviously it's it's a very deadly situation in Libya. And, you know, you can't underestimate how elated our Libyan comrades and brothers and sisters are in Libya and the diaspora. Even if they see six people anywhere in the world who have gathered together in a public space or a private space and said, look, we're supporting you. You are our comrades in Libya. We give you respect. You can't you can't imagine, you can't underestimate how inspiring and motivating that is. Because this is a this is a struggle who have no allies. It's not being reported in yeah. any in any news. A little bit in RT, and RT is the only place that any major media platform that's reported anything close to objectivity on Libya for the last four years. But you know, you know, it's really important that we, we, we come to their defense. They're no less important than the people of Cuba or Venezuela or Palestine. Um 
or, or socialist Korea or anywhere else. You know, we're, we're one humanity in a trench of struggle for liberation, and the Libyans have borne a really a, a, a unfair brunt of the burden of struggle and sacrifice and resistance, similar to the people of Syria as well. No doubt about it. Well, in closing, um, since we're already probably over the time um, that we were supposed to be speaking, but that's how it goes with me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about solutions here. You're kind of already getting at it, uh, building solidarity, building networks, facilitating uh, relations within the global south, relations between people that, that are natural allies that should be allies. But let's bring it back to what we can do, we meaning those of us on the left in the West. Um, I know that you have an event coming up here in a matter of a couple of weeks uh, on this issue. So tell us a little bit about the event and then broaden that out a little further and uh, how do you envision activists in the West who are sympathetic to what we're talking about here, what is it that you think that they need to be doing? Yeah, we're having an event on uh, on Tuesday the 25th um, on the situation in Libya, on the death sentences and also the socialist Jamaria uh, protests that have taken place all across Libya and also in Egypt and Tunisia and, and, and in a bunch of other places. Now, Now, I think if we zoom out the challenge and the problem we face is this. Pre-1991, we had entire East Europe and entire Soviet Union um, working day and night, employing tens of thousands of people to develop the ideological, practical, military, alliance, unity building across the globe. That's what we had until 1989, 1991. After that, that all disappeared. And we haven't yet recovered from that. Now, there's important unity building going on multilaterally in terms of South-South relations. There's no doubt about that. There's some amazing historical, powerful moves that are going on in terms of the BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Silk, the Silk Road uh, project of the Chinese, ALBA, many things that are going on which are really brilliant. But we haven't got the capacity of leadership that we had until 1991. And part of the adverse <clears throat> impact and continuing challenges as a result of that fallout is we need to weave together again that unity. Yes. And, 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 and people like you and I and the people that we're engaged with on social media and we work with in real life are, are really crucial to that. We are not states. We are not state employees of Venezuela or Korea or China. Okay, that's fair enough. But what we do creates ripples. It creates a ripple effect. It does have a positive contribution, especially in the area of social media, or sometimes I call anti-social media, with all its negatives, what social media does, it makes people see that something is happening, that you're, that you're raising your voice, that you're mobilizing. So all of this really chips in. And, and those of us like you and I, Eric, and many of our other colleagues who are on television and on radio, you know, we're a part of that global struggle. And millions are in, we're engaging millions in these, in these issues and, and, and conversations and, and, and politics and advocacy as well. So, so for example, very concretely, you know, I met the Eritrean comrades just yesterday. And, uh, I, and I said to the, to the comrades here supporting the resistance in East Ukraine, I say to the comrades, the Syrians, the Turks, the Kurds, the Malians, the Libyans, the Eritreans, the Zimbabweans, all these diaspora communities have a common enemy in the regimes of London, Paris, and Washington. They have common problems, and they have a, and you know, imperialism is united across the globe against us, but we still have to develop that unity. So what's, I don't, you know, it just, sometimes I just get so frustrated that, why, you know, the, 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 for example, the pro-PKK community in London can, if they so wish and when they need to, bring out more than 5,000 people onto the streets in London. The Turks and the Kurds in London 
are the biggest contingents of the annual May Day, uh, International Workers' Day's procession in London. I mean, the Turks and the Kurds together comprise more than half of the entire demonstration. So if we can, if we can in, in, in incrementally unite these forces together with other forces of the, the, the three southern continents, we're obviously going to have a much more powerful radical movement within the West. And also, Western left movements who are loyal and cognizant and sensitive to anti-imperialism will have their socialist movement and left-wing movements strengthened as well, if they so choose, and I hope they do choose to engage constructively. Obviously, we know much of the Western left is racist and imbued with imperialist prejudice, but those people who are more vigilant to that and more correct on those issues, well, it's going to strengthen our capacity as well. So it's, it's just the very nitty-gritty things that we have to employ to tie these things to that. It just means, for example, inviting speakers from different communities at the same event, which we're developing here. Yeah, and you know, I, I agree with all of that, and I would just add one last point to that, that one thing that people in the West, uh, you know, leftist activists and others also need to be cognizant of is that that we're in a new time and I think that we need to understand that the notion that the quote-unquote the world revolution or revolutionary politics can and must be led by white western working class people I think that this is an anachronistic notion and something that is in many ways quite discredited I think that rather what we need to be understanding is that capacity building and the building of solidarity networks and all of these other things has to be taking place on an international level level and with an international anti-imperialist scope. And I think that that is really ultimately the task for those of us who are serious about things like peace and anti-war positions and all of the rest of that, because uh, otherwise, I don't think that you're really addressing the root of the problem. No, I totally 100% agree, Eric. I mean, the, 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 the thing is, I mean, I know people like, you know, when you, you our political relationship has 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 budded and developed over over social media, but we need to go that one step further as well. And not just you and I, but all of our networks together as well. Then you know we need we need red alert action sometimes. You know we really need to come together and to be ready to take action. And I'm not obviously I'm advocating peaceful action uh, in terms of political mobilization, conferences, protests, it it etc. But you know. We just need to develop an activist culture of doing an activity and actions when we need things to happen. So if an entire leadership of a radical socialist country is threatened with a death sentence, that's obviously a moment to, to go out and mobilize. Back in 2002, when they attempted coup against or the attempted Arab sting against Venezuela in 2002, we all mobilized against it. So you know, any, any front of our global struggle that's under a particular spike of attack, we have to mobilize uh, uh, around, especially those that are treated in a more racist way by the Western left. So places like Korea and China, it happens to be mostly African Asian countries, actually, who are totally treated in a, in a frankly shitty way. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, these, so we have to inversely to the way that the district inversely respect them and raise them um, in, in, in the eyes and ears of, of, of those who, who we can uh, attract to. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. All right. Um, well, we're out of time, unfortunately. Sukant Chandan, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, again, listeners, you should be following Sukant's work. If you're not on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, definitely connect with him there. Um, Twitter as well. I think, what's your Twitter again? I forgot. 
It's Sons of Malcolm. Yeah. At Sons of Malcolm. At, at Sons of Malcolm. Of course, also follow his uh, blog, sonsofmalcolm.blogspot.com. Sukant Chandan, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. I appreciate it, Eric. Uh, thanks to you and all the comrades at Counterpunch. And um, I hope this has been useful to your listeners, this conversation. But keep doing what you're doing. And hopefully we'll see where this life journey takes us. And hopefully we might might yet see the total end, at least to physical force imperialism in the world. God willing, let's see what happens. I love it when this show ends on a positive note. So thanks again. And listeners, as always, appreciate you tuning in. Give us those positive reviews on iTunes. Help spread the word about Counterpunch Radio. And uh, I will speak to you again next week.